Let us now turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and we'll read through this chapter and include verse 1 of chapter 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Then in connection with our scripture reading, we turn to Lord's Day 17. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, some of you may have noticed that there is a, a great similarity between our theme and outline of this evening and that of last week. Last week in the evening service, we 
considered the wonderful teaching that is confessed in the previous Lord's Day that all believers died with Christ. And now we're considering uh, the uh, uh, companion, the uh, not the opposite, but the corollary to that spiritual death that we have in Christ with uh, the new life that we also have in him, that all are raised with Christ. Now, you, again, uh, notice that these statements are uh, in the past tense. They describe what has already occurred. It does not say uh, that we will die with Christ or we will be raised with Christ, but the Scripture teaches this as something that has already occurred. Again, briefly, by way of uh, citation of Romans chapter 6 and verse 5, we read, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then uh, verse 11 makes clear uh, the significance of that uh, uh, death and new life, where it says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, consider this to be something that is already presently true of you. And that's the, the same uh, teaching that we have in Colossians chapter 3. In uh, the first part of verse 1, we have the words, If then you were raised with Christ. It speaks of something that uh, has taken place already. And uh, the assumption that is if you are believers, this is true of you. You were raised with Christ. And then likewise in verse 3, For you die, past tense, and uh, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's interesting. He speaks of having died and yet having a life. And that is a spiritual life that is secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so dying unto sins or being dead unto sin and being alive in Christ are like two sides of a coin. Uh, we can we can distinguish uh, them. We must uh, distinguish them, but we do not separate them. We might look uh, at these things as having a negative and a positive side. On the negative side, yes, we have died to sin. Uh, you died. Again, uh, verse 3 of Colossians 3, and actually in verse 9, that is described as having put off the old man. It says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man. Again, speaking there of something that has already taken place. That's the negative side. And then on the positive side, uh, Positively, you were raised with Christ, and the corollary to that is uh, in verse 10, and have put on uh, the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And our focus tonight is on the new life, this new life that we have in the risen Christ. We have been raised to new life in the resurrection of Christ. And we're basically following the same pattern of last uh, Sunday night's sermon in terms of the outline, beginning with the certainty of Christ's resurrection. We considered the certainty and the necessity of Christ's death last week, but we consider the necessity of this glorious fact of Christ risen from the dead. And that's why I took the time to lead us in a reading of Matthew chapter 28, because there we have another one of the historical records, this inspired account of Jesus' resurrection. 
We want to emphasize that that the Christian life and Christian living, it simply does not exist apart from these historical facts. You know, that's what, that's what liberalism, historic theological liberalism has tried to do is distinguish, uh, fact from spiritual meaning and significance. The idea that you can dispense with the miraculous events recorded in scripture as not necessarily so important for the actual ideas that are relevant for us. In other words, the importance is that we uh, understand this idea of a kind of newness of life that we that we have an awakening to the idea that that God is our father that uh, that we can have a new beginning to our lives and there were and there are yet to this day uh, so-called Christians who uh, think that you can do that in a truly Christian, meaningful way, and it doesn't really depend upon whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that that's not simply a mistake. Uh, that's not simply a doctrinal error. That is a different religion altogether. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, this wonderful passage on the, the resurrection of Christ, and its significance uh, for us. We read in verse 14, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is empty. Verse 17, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. There is no Christian life. There is no Christian living apart from the reality of Christ risen from the dead. According to the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is its like the validation of everything, of significance to the Christian faith. The identity of Jesus of Nazareth, according to Scripture and according to Jesus' own claims, are validated by His resurrection. It demonstrates the fact that indeed He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And what Scripture foretold of him and what he said of himself is proven by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection is God's vindication, God's proof that Christ indeed is the innocent one who died the just for the unjust. And in that connection, it is the demonstration of the acceptance of his death as a sacrifice for sins. Romans chapter uh, 4 connects the resurrection of Christ with our justification, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It says, This righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, who was delivered up because He took upon Himself the guilt and the liability to punishment that belonged to us because of our sins. He took that upon Himself. He was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. His resurrection demonstrates the fact that by His death, Jesus has in fact satisfied all the demands of God's justice. 
that He endured the full weight of the penalty for our sins. He suffered hell for us upon the cross. And His resurrection proves that the last penny had been paid. God's righteousness has been completely satisfied. And on that basis, we are justified through faith in Christ. His resurrection shows that He has overcome death so that He might make us share in the righteousness He obtained for us by His death. Yes, the theological term for that is justification. God declares us righteous just as if we had never sinned. Rather, just as if we ourselves had fulfilled all righteousness. Because Christ fulfilled all righteousness for us. And His death completely and entirely removes the condemnation and guilt of our sins. So the resurrection of Christ is crucial for our justification. Likewise, His resurrection reveals Christ's power to actually bestow, to impart these saving benefits that He obtained for us. This also is emphasized in uh, Lord's Day 17. By His resurrection, He overcame death so that He might make us share in the righteousness He obtained for us. It's by His power we too are already raised to a new life. We read from Matthew 28, including that that great commission that Christ gave His disciples to go uh, preaching the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the triune name. But He prefaces this commission with the assurance, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And He assures them, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. As they carry out that task, they are the instruments of the risen Christ. The book of Acts records what Jesus Christ continued to do and teach through the apostolic ministry. Because it's through that ministry that Christ fulfills His own uh, word when He said that the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who hear shall live. Because it's through the preaching of the Gospel that the living Christ calls His sheep unto Himself. My sheep hear My voice. They believe in Me. They follow Me. By His resurrection, Christ is exalted in power to actually bestow the benefits that He obtained for us by His death, by the power of His Holy Spirit. He communicates Himself that resurrection life to us. By His Holy Spirit, He works that resurrection life in us. The glorious fact of Christ's resurrection is absolutely essential for our understanding of the Gospel. The glorious fact of Christ's resurrection is foundational uh, to these benefits then that we speak of in terms of newness of life in Him. But that involves also then the certain relationship that we have to Christ's resurrection. Union with Christ is union with Him in His resurrection. And again, that uh, is 
comparable in a parallel way, in a similar way to our union with Christ in his death. Our union with Christ in his death means that we have died to sin. That means that the dominion and the rule, the domination of sin in our lives is over. Our old man, this old nature, was crucified, dead, and buried with Christ. And then positively, union with Christ in his resurrection means new spiritual life. I'm going to refer uh, to a, a number of other passages that teach that. Again, just to emphasize that we're not talking about some obscure, fine technicality. Uh, but what we're talking about is really uh, at the heart of uh, the gospel of of Jesus Christ. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 4 uh, through 6, in contrast to uh, our condition in Adam as those who are dead in trespasses and sins, we read that God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ. That's in connection with him, in union with him and what he did. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together. Now, that refers to our union with Christ in his resurrection. But uh, as is Sometimes found in Scripture, even the, the language of Christ's resurrection uh, extends beyond his physical resurrection from the grave. And it's like God raised him from the dead. He raised him up, 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 up. He's raised to the right hand of God in glory. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yes, spiritually, by virtue of our union with Christ, we are already seated in the heavenly places in Christ because our head is there. And we are united to him spiritually. And that guarantees that all the members of the body will actually be brought there in their own individual experience. But our union with Christ has already secured that even as our union with Christ in God's purpose and plan secured our death to sin and our spiritual resurrection at the cross so that certainly it would come and enter our own individual, personal life and experience. In the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 2, we read in verse 11 and following, In Him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised no, he's talking to Gentiles who were not literally circumcised. But he says, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ was cut off. Christ died. And circumcision was a sign of that. But the reality of what circumcision pointed to was experienced in Jesus Christ, who was cut off from the land of the living, in his death for sin, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, 
That's a description of uh, their condition by nature in their sins. You being dead, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And then again, there are those verses in Colossians chapter 3, you were raised with Christ, you died. And we could go back to Romans chapter 6, we read that and considered that somewhat last time, where we see how significant uh, this, this union with Jesus Christ is for an understanding of who we are as Christians who have died to the dominion and rule of sin and who have already been spiritually raised to newness of life because of our connection with what Jesus did for us. The sheer frequency of this language shows us how basic it is to knowing ourselves as Christians, to knowing ourselves as those who have been baptized into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and what that means for our identity. Our present resurrection life in Christ is not simply some some mystical idea. I can see that uh, it's a temptation, or we might conceive of it in that way, precisely because we speak of it as something that happened at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. And how does that connect then with my actual life? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to we need to consider two things. First of all, we need to consider the representative office of Christ as our mediator. You see, in God's plan, Christ really took our place. That means that he his action in dying and rising again it really accomplished, it really achieved our death to sin and our resurrection to new life. Even way back then, when it happened, he achieved those things for us. So that's the first thing that we have to understand. The representative uh, office of Christ as our mediator, who is acting on our behalf. And then secondly... There's the application of this to our own actual life and experience. And here there is a parallel. There is a parallel even uh, with our relationship to Adam. The Bible says that in Adam, all die. Adam also was a kind of uh, covenant head, a kind of representative of the human race. And when Adam sinned, we sinned in him by virtue of our relationship to him as a representative. Now, that happened even uh, more thousands of years ago than the death of Christ. Many thousands of years ago, we died in Adam, long before we were even born. But the significance of Adam's role as a representative, it only entered our own life and experience when we were conceived and born in sin. And the reality of of uh, our connection with Adam and his sin then became a personal, we might say an existential reality to our own personal lives. But there is a parallel 
with that of Christ. So with Christ, his representative accomplishment is real and it guarantees our resurrection life, but it doesn't connect with our life and experience unless we are born again. It connects with our lives actually when we come to faith. In fact, that's the language that was used in that passage that I read from uh, Colossians 2, where it says, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Because it's by faith that we are united to Jesus Christ in our actual life and experience. In God's purpose and plan, we're united to him in terms of uh, Jesus' representative work for us. But in terms of an actual, vital, spiritual union in our own lives, that occurs through faith. Simply believing in the truth of who Jesus is and receiving him. And you see what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the power of the risen Christ has indeed entered every Christian. Resurrection life in Christ is the restored image of God. In verse 10 of Colossians 3, we say, uh, speaking to Christians, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You have put on the new man. Past tense. It describes what happened when they became Christians. Christ entered them. They were renewed. They were restored in the image of God. Paul prayed for the sanctification of the church in chapter 1 of Colossians. He prays that uh, they might walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might for all patience and long-suffering with joy. He describes their sanctification in terms of the work of God strengthening them with all might. And you look at the parallel account there in Ephesians, and we, we see that that strengthening with all might is through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that worked in Christ when it raised Him from the dead. And that Spirit who now dwells in us as believers. The power of resurrection life in the Christian is the power of sanctification. Sanctification begun, really, with regeneration, and sanctification continuing whereby the power of Christ's resurrection life is at work in us. And that leads us then, thirdly, to the practical application of our resurrection life in Him. Here the point being that newness of life is expressed in practice. Of course, this newness of life is necessary, because without it, what are we? We're dead in trespasses and sins. And so this newness of life is necessary and it is certain to believers, again, as as uh, it says in verse 13 of chapter 2, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, 
having forgiven you all trespasses. So this newness of life is necessary, otherwise there's nothing but spiritual death. And this newness of life is certain in the life of every Christian, but as with the the uh, dealing with the remains of sin in our life, this newness of life also requires effort to work it out in our daily life and experience. You see, it's this newness of life that creates and motivates and empowers new living. That's the logic, brothers and sisters, of the first two verses of Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, in other words, since it is true, if you're believers that you have this new identity in Christ, you've been spiritually raised with Him, therefore, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In other words, given the reality of who you are in Christ, live that out. Live that out in your pursuits, in your aspirations. That's the pattern. That's, that's the pattern that you have really, uh, throughout this, this chapter. You see the same order in, uh, in verse 10 in comparison to verse 12. Verse 10 says, you have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. Past tense. That's an indicative statement. In other words, it's a statement of fact describing these Christians. They have put on the new man as Christians, as believers, renewed in the image of Christ. They have put on the new man. And then what flows from that? Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on... Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. That's imperative mode, right? The indicative mode, the statement of fact that you have put on the new man is then followed by the imperative mode. Therefore, do this. You have put on the new man. Therefore, live out all those characteristics of the new man. Specifically, well, the new man, the, the image of Christ is marked by kindness, tender mercies, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You see that our endeavor after growing sanctification is grounded in our identity as those who have already been raised with Christ to new life. Otherwise, it's like beating a dead horse. That's why the demands of Christian living always are heard as oppressive laws and rules to unregenerate people. Because they have no desire after them. They don't see the beauty of them. If you're renewed in Christ, you read such words as put on tender mercies, kindness, and humility. It's like, oh, you, you think to yourself, what a, what a beautiful description of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that I had more of that. I need more of those spiritual graces. And so I'll pray, Lord, make me more humble. Teach me to be more gentle and kind and meek. Renew me more and more after the image of Christ. You see, an unrenewed person would never pray for that. Not really. Not with longing. But those who are renewed in Christ have, have new appetites. 
new desires, new aspirations. Now, of course, this is a lifelong endeavor, isn't it? It's a process. And our experience of this new life is sometimes so pathetically weak, and its beginnings are often felt to be very small and are often, in fact, very small, perhaps even hardly discernible. Again, it's important for us not to trust in our feelings or our experiences because this newness of life is itself also a matter of faith. You know, that's why we have these exhortations uh, such as we're given in Romans chapter 6. It says, reckon yourselves to be indeed dead unto sin and alive unto God. You need to think of yourself by faith as Christians. You need to believe in the significance of what it means to be united to Jesus Christ. And that again means that our efforts after sanctification must always be grounded in the gospel. They must never be uprooted from the promises of God and from the sacraments whereby God strengthens our faith and confirms us in our faith and strengthens us in our union with Jesus Christ. Because we really need to be reminded of our identity in Christ and not judged by our feelings. We need to teach our children to do that. We need to remind them of their baptism. We need to remind them of the fact that their baptism is God's help to strengthen their faith in His promises. And you say to your children, God not only promises you that He forgives your sins as you trust in Him, but God wants you to believe that so firmly that He made sure that you have this sprinkling of water as a sign of the work of Jesus Christ washing you from sins. Believe in that. Believe in His promises and value what God has given you as helps to strengthen and confirm you in the faith. You see, that's what the sacraments are for, right? And they must also be used to that purpose. And we need to remember also, brothers and sisters, that there is likewise a correlation between, between effort after growing sanctification, and the assurance of salvation. It's one of the reasons why good works are necessary, that we might be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof. Right? That's the language of the catechism. Faith comes first, of course. It always is given the principal place. And in our doubts and fears, we resort as sinners to Jesus Christ, just as we are, without one plea. But then the best evidence also of resurrection life is the activity of renewed living. That's why Christians must take those exhortations seriously about how to relate to one another, how to live together in our homes as husbands and wives, as children, how to uh, think about our jobs, relationships in the church. And that really leads us to the rest of this chapter that spells out this pathway of, of uh, growing sanctification in terms of attitude, in terms of worship, in terms of relationships. And there's a correlation between our endeavor after growth and our enjoyment of the assurance of salvation. Again, that's not to suggest that uh, this activity of of new life in Christ is to be defined or thought of simply in terms of activism. In other words, it's not measured by the number of things that we do. 
as far as acts of Christian service, right? What does this passage emphasize at the outset? That this risen life in Christ is, first of all, it's a matter of the mind. It's the matter of the heart. It's a matter of seeking those things that are above, setting our affections on things that are above, seeking first the kingdom of God, to quote uh, the words of our Savior and his righteousness. And so it's not to be thought of in terms of how many things we do, how many committees we're on, what kind of public service we perform, not to dismiss the significance of practical ways in which we show our faith in such things, but we don't define uh, the fruits of faith simply in terms of outward actions and activity. This new life makes much of Christ, and it aims to keep him before us. Paul sums up these uh, exhortations for Christian living and saying, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the previous chapter, he says, as you have received Christ, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it in thanksgiving, as you have received Christ, continue to walk in him, living out of this relationship that you have with a mighty and gracious Savior. Always keep that before you. Find your strength and motivation there. Paul's example uh, instructs us and uh and hopefully inspires us in this matter as it directs us by his own testimony of the priorities of his life, priorities that he's still pursuing as Paul the aged, as Paul who is imprisoned, and yet he is he is aspiring uh, to know Christ. That's that's the main ambition that he has. He has not attained all that he aspires after, but he's pressing after this this goal to know Christ and to be found in him, not having his own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he wants to live out of his justification. He always resorts to his free acceptance with God through Jesus Christ. He never wants to move away from that. But right along with that, he wants to know the power of his resurrection and even fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, to die more and more unto sin, and to experience the, the reality of Christ's resurrection life, the power that's at work in him, sustaining him in hope and faith while in prison, still seeking God, still ministering as he is able. But it centers upon the pursuit of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Catechism also reminds us that the, the holiest of men have but a small beginning of this, this uh, perfect obedience that we're called to. But every Christian knows something of spiritual power, the ability to seek those things that are above to really delight in them and to pursue them sincerely from the heart. They have the beginnings of eternal joy. In fact, remember, the Catechism also defines conversion, not only in terms of a sorrow for sin, but the beginning of, of joy, 
And that beginning of joy also is a, a certain pledge and a, an assurance of fullness of joy to follow because the resurrection of Christ guarantees our justification. We're made partakers of Christ's righteousness. It guarantees our sanctification. By his power we are raised to newness of life already. And it guarantees our glorification. That our bodies themselves will be raised. And we will, in fact, be brought into the presence of Christ forever. And the beginnings of eternal joy. And the, the presence of this new life that we have in Christ also is a certain pledge of that glory that will certainly follow in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.